0: Good morning. My name is Brett. I'm the worship and groups pastor. I, there are a lot of roles that I have around here. There's a lot of roles that I have in my life. Um, and with those roles come responsibilities. And one of my uh, favorite roles that I get to play in my life is I get to be dad. And that's one of my favorite things that I get to do. But, but with that role comes a responsibility. And depending on your family, it may kind of change hands a little bit, uh, depending on how your family runs. But for me, um, my responsibilities as dad include, um, I'm the giver of hugs. So we've convinced my four year old that, uh, no matter what happens, whether you're sad or hurt or whatever, a hug will make it all, better. a hug from dad will make it better. Now we have set up a, a problem on our hands for when I uh, am out of town and, uh, that's not a problem for me, but everyone else it's a problem for. Uh, I, I am the uh, squisher of bugs. Uh, when our children were very small and in diapers, we, my wife and I came to this agreement. We came to an accord. And in this accord, uh, she would change the dirty diapers. I would take care of the bugs at our house. And uh, then I went and got pest control. So the thing is, you got to work smarter, not harder. Uh I am the coach of sports. I was going to say all sports, but my wife has coached my daughter in volleyball this year, so I'm not the coach of all sports. The thing about coaching is you just got to know more than your kid knows. So just as long as you just know more than an eight-year-old, you're probably fine. When they get older, maybe you need to pass them off. But I'm the coach of sports, even if I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, I am the turner-offer of lights and fans in rooms where no one is. Anybody with me on that one? I know there's some people out there that completely understand. Those of you that aren't dads yet or parents yet, you will come to understand that being a parent, um, that's about 40% of the job, is just following people around and turning lights and fans off in rooms where no one is. Um, and the other 30% is answering questions. There's always questions to answer. And uh, the number one question that I get asked is when we're driving in the car and we get the question... Are we there yet? You get that question, right? Are we there yet? When are we going to be there? I've told my children multiple times. Uh, I don't like, when we're driving in the car, I don't like when questions. I don't like when questions. I'm not totally in charge of when we're going to be there. Don't ask when we're going to be there. How long until we're going to be there? How long? How long? That's actually a biblical question. How how long? This question, how long is, is all over the Bible, but it is resounding in the book of Psalms. And you, you have this question, how long, O Lord, until you punish the wicked? How long, O Lord, until you save me? How long, O Lord, until you fix injustice? How long, O Lord, until you answer my prayer? And this question, how long, isn't just in the Psalms. You, all, you can find it in Revelation. Uh, John has this vision of these martyrs, these people who have been killed for their faith in Jesus. They're murdered and they're at the altar and they cry out their prayer to the Lord is, How long, O Lord, until you vindicate us? That's, that's their question, how long? That's a, that's a biblical question, how long? And you know this question, don't you? I bet you know this question on a global level. Like when we look at all all of the injustice and the wickedness and the brokenness in our world, you want to ask the question, how long? How long? How, how much longer, Lord, are you going to put up with this? How, how much longer are you going to allow these things that are against your character to reign supreme. How, how long, O oh Lord? And you maybe know this question on a global level. But I bet there's people in the room right now who know this question on a personal level. Lord, I was abused. How long until I'm vindicated? Lord, I, I've experienced loss. How long until you make it right? Lord, I'm ashamed of something I did. How long until I can experience joy again? Lord, I'm sick. How long until you heal me? Lord, I'm so tired. How long until you restore abundant life to me? How long, O oh Lord? You know this question. This question, how long is the backdrop for the text of scripture that we're going to look at today? We're going to look at Genesis chapter 40. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. Um, If you don't, that's fine. We've got it on the screen. Genesis 40. This question of how long is the backdrop for this chapter? It's not explicit. You won't find this question there. Um, But it is how we can understand what's happening in this chapter. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to read chapter 40 together. I'm going to make some points and help us understand the story. And then I'm going to make three points from the text. So let's begin Genesis chapter 40, beginning in verse one. It says sometime after this. Now, let me pause there really fast. Sometime after this, sometime after what? After these things, what what what's going on here? Um, th- this is a marker that points us back To help us frame this chapter in its context. So what has happened? After what things? So uh, Joseph is Jacob's favorite son. And his brothers hate him. So they throw him in a well. Then they sell him into slavery. And those slave traders, they sell him to a man named Potiphar. He is an official in Egypt. And they sell... Uh, They sell him to Potiphar. Well, while he is a slave to Potiphar, everything he touches turns to success because the Lord is with Joseph and he rises to power as a slave in Potiphar's house. But then Potiphar's wife lies about Joseph and he's thrown into jail because of it. But then again, the Bible tells us that that the Lord was with Joseph and he rises to power within this jail cell. Because whatever Joseph did, the Lord made it succeed. That brings us to chapter 40. After these things, let's look again. Verse 1. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. In these verses, we are introduced into two new characters that are in this story. The cupbearer and the baker. The cupbearer, his job is to bear the cup to Pharaoh. Uh, he's going to uh, produce the wine, the drink, in Pharaoh's cup, so Pharaoh can see it, so he knows that he is not being poisoned. This is the cup bearer. Now, the baker, his job is to bake. It's really not that complicated. He's the baker. Uh, and one of the things that I, I read, um, I read that ancient Egyptians loved bread, and they had 47 different kinds of bread and 38 kinds of cake. Now, after I'm done here, I'm going to go do a little research. I might be ancient Egyptian. I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, the cupbearer and the baker, and what they have done is, it says in the text that they have committed an offense against Pharaoh. Now, uh, literally, they have sinned against Pharaoh. It's ex- the exact same word in chapter thirty-nine when when uh, Joseph tells Potiphar's wife, "I can't do this thing. I can't sin against God." It's the exact same word here. They have sinned against Pharaoh. They have committed an offense. Against the king and we don't know what that offense was, but it was uh, enough to make pharaoh angry The text tells us pharaoh is angry and he puts them in prison and he puts them in prison where joseph is confined That's no accident That's not a coincidence of circumstances. That is the providence of god god put them together And we're going to see how this plays out in the story. Let's look in verse five and one night They both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each with its own interpretation. And when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So each man, the cupbearer, the baker, they have their own dream on the same night. And these dreams are vivid and they're disturbing and they are distraught because of it. They they know this is some kind of an omen and they, they demand an interpretation. Now, when you and I have a bad dream, I, I guess I can't speak for you. When I have a bad dream, uh I I do one of two things. One, I forget about it, or I tell it to some someone who largely doesn't care. And then I forget about it, right? That's how I handle dreams. I don't know about you. But but for them, they demanded an interpretation. And the reason why is because in this part of the world, at this time, there is there's a whole... System of dream interpretation and you can go back and find ancient documents from about the time of joseph That that explain how you're supposed to interpret symbols in dreams and in pharaoh's court There would have been counselors who could have explained these dreams to these men, but now they're in prison They're cut off from these counselors. They have no interpretation. They know it means something, but they don't know what and joseph notices He notices that they're downcast. He asks them, what's wrong? Well, there's a dream we cannot interpret. And he says, interpretations come from God. Let me take a stab at it. And so what happens is the cupbearer tells his dream. Look in verse 9. The chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, there was a vine before me. And on the vine, there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed them in the cup in Pharaoh's hand. So a couple of things I want to point out about this dream. That's going to help us understand what's happening in the chapter. First of all, I want you to notice the cup dream has to do with his occupation. So his dream involves a cup and grapes and wine. He's the cup bearer. That's, that's his deal. The other thing that's that you see in his dream is the number three. So you have three branches on the vine. And then you have three actions that, that the uh, branches do. It budded, it blossomed, and it ripened. And then three actions that, that the cupbearer does. It says he took the grapes, he pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Three, three, three. You see these numbers here, and this is his dream. If you look in verse 12, you'll find Joseph's interpretation. And Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. Notice that phrase, lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Joseph's interpretation is that in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. And restore you to your former position. Well, that imagine how the cupbearer must have received that news. I'm not going to be in jail much longer. I'm really excited about what's about to take place. Maybe he wasn't guilty and he was going to be vindicated. Or maybe he was guilty but was going to be forgiven. So imagine how he must have responded. So Joseph, seeing this reaction, makes a plea. Look at Joseph's plea in verse 14. Only remember me, Joseph says, only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. So Joseph's trying to get out of jail. And he's kind of got two, two tactics that he takes. First, he kind of leans into the favor that maybe he's earned with the cupbearer. And so he leans into this favor and he says, because I've done this for you. Now, here are four things. He says, remember me. Show me kindness, steadfast love, loyalty. Show me this loyalty. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house, this prison house. Get me out. But if this favor isn't enough, Joseph has another tactic. He appeals to justice. He says that he was abducted. I was stolen out of my land. I'm here against my will. And even more than that, I've been put in jail for things that I did not do. Literally, he says here, I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. The pit. That word pit is the exact same word in Genesis chapter 37. When Joseph's brothers who hated him, they took him and they threw him into a well, a cistern. A pit, it's the same exact word. What Joseph is saying here to the cupbearer is that I, in my life, I have gone from pit to pit. I have gone from dungeon to dungeon. At no fault of my own. I don't deserve this, but I've gone from pit to pit. Well, seeing this favorable interpretation that the cupbearer received, the baker is excited. So now he wants Joseph to interpret his dream. Look in verse 16. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also have had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. Now. Uh, a couple of things I want you to see from this dream to kind of help, help us understand what's happening. There's some similarities with the cupbearer's dream, aren't there? Uh, this dream involves his occupation also. Remember, the cupbearer's dream involved his occupation. Here you have the baker, and his dream involves his occupation as baking. You also see the number three show up. There are three baskets on his head, and that's a little bit of comedy there. He's balancing these three baskets on his head and there's bread in there. Now there's some differences though. There's some differences between the two dreams. Uh, one, One of the differences, how the dream is framed. The dream is framed with this phrase on my head at the top and on my head at the bottom. So you've got this on my head phrase that shows up twice. And then you'll notice that the baker doesn't actually get to do his job. The cupbearer gets to place the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but the baker never gets there because the bird's Eat the bread out of the basket, and that's the third thing I want to point out to you. Birds, look. If you dream about birds, it's bad. Like if you, if you go to H E B, okay, and you get out of the car and you see the birds that are on the power line and the power line's doing this number, get back in your car and leave. Like this <laughs> birds are bad. If you dream about birds, it's bad. And and you see it, you see it playing out. You know what's going to happen. Birds. Okay, so then here's Joseph's interpretation, Joseph answered and said. And this interpretation, I want you to notice, it's, it's kind of funny. I want you to notice how he, he starts out the exact same way as he interpreted for the cupbearer. The exact same phrases. Okay, so the, the baker's like, he's ready. He's ready for this interpretation. He says, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. And the baker's like, uh-huh. And then he says, in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. Okay, and then he says, from you, and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Told you birds were bad. That, that is, that is Joseph's interpretation of this dream. So, so that, that's what we're supposed to figure out here. Is Joseph's interpretation from God? Well, we got three days to find out, because he gave him a time frame. So in verse 20, in verse 20, it tells us, on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. So he has a birthday party and at the party he says, hey, cupbearer, stand up. Hey, baker, stand up. I want to, I have something I got to tell you both. He addresses the cupbearer first, verse 21. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position. And he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. So just as Joseph said, restored to his position, the cupbearer is out of jail. And then we're going to move on to the baker. Now, the way the original language reads, there's a little bit more suspense to the next sentence. It it says that the chief cupbearer was restored to his position. But as for the baker, and you're supposed to think, drumroll, what's going to happen? As for the baker, he hanged him. Just as Joseph interpreted. So the dream plays out just as Joseph said. The cupbearer is restored to his position. The baker is killed. Now, when the cupbearer is restored, remember, Joseph said, remember me. When, this is going to happen. So when it does, remember me and get me out of prison. I shouldn't be here. Well, Here's a punch in the gut. Look at verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And if we were to continue to read, we would see in chapter 41, we would see. It's going to be two years before the cupbearer even remembers Joseph's name. Two years of not knowing. Two years of wondering, is today the day that they're going to knock on the door and come get me? Two years of waiting for deliverance. Two years of asking the question, how long? Well, there are three things that I want to pull from this text. The first thing that I want to pull from this text is this. God is always working in our lives, but it's often only in the background. God is always working in our lives, but it's often only in the background. But he always finishes what he starts. You know, there are times in our lives when it's obvious that God is working. You you think of the story of, of Joseph. There are times where it's obvious that God is doing something. When he's in Potiphar's house and everything's going well, everything he touches is successful. When he's in jail and everything he touches is successful and we're told the Lord was with him. The Lord is with him. It's obvious that God is doing something in Joseph's life. When we think about Joseph's uh, family Joseph's dad Jacob Had interaction after interaction with the Lord God was doing something In Jacob's life Or you think about Joseph's grandfather Isaac He had interactions with the Lord Face to face Interactions with God Or Joseph's great grandfather Abraham Think about Abraham And all the interaction God was doing something in Abraham's life And it's obvious But I want you to notice in chapter 40, there is no obvious interaction with God. Joseph has no obvious interaction with him. There's a mention of God. It says that dreams come, uh, interpretations of dreams come from God. But there's there's no real interaction. There's only this passing mention. And so between chapter 40 and 41, we're wondering, did the Lord finally give up? Did he he stop moving in Joseph's life? There's a key word that I want you to... uh, If you're the type of person that writes in your Bible, I want you to underline it. I don't write in my Bible. But you can. It's fine. Uh, Look, I want you to look in... um, Where is it? Verse 14. It says the word, remember. Underline it. Remember. Joseph tells the cupbearer, remember me. And then at the end, in verse 23... I want you to underline remember again. The chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. This word remember is key in this chapter to help us see what's going on. But this word also is key in the book of Genesis. All throughout, you'll see in some key moments, there's this word remember. For example, you know the story of the flood. Mankind is wicked. God intends to destroy mankind with a flood. Except for Noah, he's going to preserve for himself a people. It's going to be Noah and his family. He tells them, build a boat. They build a boat. They get on the boat. Here comes the flood. Right? That's how the story goes. And and the Bible says that the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. Months. Months inside that boat. Shut up in the ark for months. Look, if I'm on a pontoon boat on Lake Travis for 30 minutes... I'm getting kind of done, right? They were in a boat for months at a time. And then in Genesis chapter 8, it says, but God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. It would have been tempting for Noah to wonder, we're shut up in this boat on the water. Maybe God forgot us. Maybe he doesn't know where we are. Maybe he lost us. They had been there a long time, but the Bible says that God remembered Noah, and at that point, He decided to cause the floodwaters to recede. In a similar way, God remembered Abraham, Joseph's great-grandfather. You remember the story of Sodom? He's gonna destroy Sodom, but before he does, he goes and basically drags Lot out of there. And the, and the Genesis tells us the reason why God did that is because God remembered Abraham. And he did this kindness to him. Or let's get even closer to Joseph. Joseph's mom, Rachel. She was the beloved wife of Jacob, but she was barren. And Genesis says that the Lord remembered her and gave her a son, and she named him Joseph. But here we see Joseph was not remembered by the cupbearer. And maybe he had every reason to start to think that maybe the Lord didn't remember him. He had gone from pit to pit for crimes he did not commit. And maybe these circumstances indicate that the Lord had forgotten, had, it, had given up. There's no more plan. But look, when we read the Bible, we don't read with blinders on. We don't just focus on chapter 40. And that's all that we know. We, we know the whole story. We, we know what's going to take place. God is working in the background beneath the surface. Have you ever planted a seed? You, you plant the seed underneath the soil, and you can't see the growth. You can't see what's taking place beneath the surface. So you water, and you, you wait, and really that's a picture of faith. I, I, this is supposed to work. I'm going to keep doing what I'm supposed to do. You trust the process will eventually bear fruit. Look, that's the same of what God is doing in us. He is moving in our lives in thousands of ways, and we might only be aware of just a few of them. But he's moving often beneath the surface. One day that seed is going to break through, and we're going to see what he's been doing all along. And you'll know the truth, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the end. See, what happens to Joseph here is significant. In these moments, chapter 40, it it is significant what happens. We don't read with blinders on. We know how the story finishes. Joseph is going to be second in command in Egypt. He's going to be second. And what he's going to do is he is going to save his own family from a famine. And so this is significant for Joseph, but it's also significant for his family. And, And more than just his family, it's significant for a whole people. Because Joseph's family is going to turn into the people of Israel, a whole nation of people. But this isn't just significant for the people of Israel. This is significant for all of human history. Because one of Joseph's brothers that was about to die in a famine, his name is Judah. And from Judah, one of his descendants is Jesus Christ, the one who comes and saves the whole world from their sins. And so you see how this process is significant, eternally significant. It's not momentary or mundane. This monumental end of Joseph's story doesn't happen unless he goes to prison. And it doesn't happen unless he meets the cupbearer in these circumstances and is remembered at just the right time later. Look, God does monumental things through the momentary and the mundane. God is working in the everyday, moment by moment things that you and I, we think is trivial. And we think that it's insignificant. We think that it's pointless. And sometimes, listen, this is hard. This is hard. But sometimes we view these things as evil. And yet, God is using these things to work in our lives. Often in the background. Beneath the surface. In ways that we will never see. And so we trust him even when we don't see it. He finishes what he starts. He has a plan. He's working in the background. He's working in the background. The second thing that I want you to see from this text is this. The Lord never, ever forgets his people. Never. He never, ever forgets his people. But good things just take a little time. And so the cupbearer forgot Joseph's plight, but the Lord didn't. The Lord remembered Noah in the ark. The Lord remembered Abraham and delivered his nephew from destruction. The Lord remembered Joseph's mom and gave her a son Later, the way the story is going to go is these people are going to be rescued from the famine. and They're going to grow into a mighty nation in Egypt. And then they're going to become slaves and they're going to be abused and they're going to be mistreated. And Exodus says that they cry out to the Lord and the Lord hears their cry. And Exodus 2 says the Lord remembers his promises to them. And he sends Moses. It is the case that the Lord never, ever forgets his people. Never Never. You may feel like you've gone from pit to pit. And that may be true. You may be able to list all of the terrible things that have happened to you and the situations that you're in. But you cannot leave this room and you cannot say that the Lord has forgotten you. He has not forgotten you. Joseph had every reason to believe that he had been forgotten. But as the story plays out, we see that the Lord was with him all along, working in the background. No matter what happens to you, you can know that the Lord Is with you. You know King David said it this way. For my father and my mother have forsaken me. But the Lord took me in. No matter what you have suffered. No matter what pit you have found yourself in. Even if your own father and mother have rejected you. You can know that the Lord will take you in. The Lord will take you in. You are love. You are treasured. You are not forgotten. Tell me, how could he? How, how could he forget you? Paul says in Romans that God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before we even thought about wanting to obey God, Christ died on our behalf. How could he forget us? And, and Paul asked the question later, what can separate us from the love of Christ? Which of these pits can separate you from His love? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? What about death? What about life or angels or rulers? What about things present? Like what you're walking through? Or or what about things to come? What about the future or powers or height or death? What about loss? Or what about rejection or shame? What about anxiety? What about abuse? What about things that I've done to myself? What about things that people have done to me? Can those things separate me from the love of God? Can anything in all creation separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Can anything in all creation cause God to stop loving you? Is there anything that can cause God to forget about you? The answer is no. No. Nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Nothing. He has not forgotten you. He cannot forget you. He will not forget you. But. It feels like it sometimes, doesn't it? Like our circumstances sometimes make us think that the Lord must have forgotten. He's moving in everybody else's life but mine. I mean, I look on Facebook and I see how everybody's doing on Facebook. He's moving in everybody's life but but mine. Or bad things keep happening to me. Maybe that means the Lord has rejected me and we want to ask the question, how long? And He won't even answer that. Look, he is working out his plan, and good things just take a little time. You plant that seed, you plant it, and you wait. And if you want to, you can be like a kid asking, are we there yet? But you look at the surface, you see no growth, but you have to remember, good things just take a little time. Uh, yesterday, my, uh, my daughter Emma, she hurt her foot a week ago or something like that, and she asked, she asked the question, why does my foot still hurt? And my other daughter Clara, she's, for she said because God is still working on it hey why does it still hurt because God's still working on it he's not finished but our eyes lie to us don't they our eyes lie to us and so the third thing that I want you to pull from this story is this reflection brings clarity Reflection brings clarity often you only see his hand in your life as you reflect back on the end of the story Our eyes lie to us Looking back you can often see the hand of god in ways that you would have never seen when you were in the middle of it Think about the disciples There were things that jesus did and said that they didn't understand in the moment and later upon reflection and with the Illumination of the holy spirit then they understood then they got it As you look back on your life, you'll be able to see the ways that God has been moving all along. Those times He told you no, He was protecting you. Those times He told you to wait, that was just the right thing. This is hard. That pain you experienced, it was for good. It made you better. It shaped who you are. When your life is over, when you stand at the end of your life and you look back, you'll be able to see how His hand guided you all the way. You'll be able to see the completion of the good things that just took a little time. You'll be able to see that the Lord always finishes what He starts. You'll see how He was working in the background the whole time, guiding you along the path. The path on which He'll fulfill His promises to you. And one day, you'll be at your destination. One day, his plan for you will be accomplished. And I guess the question then is, what is God's plan for you? How do we know the will of God in our lives? God has a plan. What is it? This is God's plan. Are you ready for the big secret? The big secret is this. This is what God wants for you. He wants to mold you into the image of Jesus Christ. That's what He wants in your life. He wants to conform you into His image. And on one uh, on one day, you will be raised to eternal life. That is what God wants to do. The mundane and the minutiae ends with something monumental. Our story ends with an empty grave. Until then, the question remains. How long? How long until that day? How long until I'm vindicated? How long until my hurts are healed? How long until the lies are exposed? How long until justice rolls like thunder? I'm tired. I'm tired. How long? Well, we won't know. We can't know. But we can be certain That that day is coming. That day is coming when the Lord God is going to make all things new. And until then, we walk in trust and faith and hope until we reach that day. So I'm going to invite you to respond. And the way that we're going to respond is James and Emily are going to sing a song. Uh, You likely don't know the song. It's brand new. And um, they're going to sing this song, and, and they're going to sing it over you. You're welcome to sing it if, if you want. The lyrics will be on the screen. They're going to sing it over you. You don't have to stand unless you want to. But I want you to take this moment to, to reflect on your life and see, how has the Lord brought me through? Or maybe you're in the middle of a pit right now, and you can't see outside of it. Take this moment to reflect, but take this moment and ask the question, how long? It's okay. Ask that question. How long? How long? So I'm going to pray and then we're going to respond.